From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. Climate change has been a major priority in California for almost 20 years. Starting with Republican Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger and continuing with Democratic Governors Jerry Brown and Gavin Newsom. Is the state meeting its climate change goals? And what impact are those policies having on the state's economy generally, and specifically on transportation, a major source of greenhouse gases? We'll ask our guest, Ross Brown, an expert on climate change. We'll also hear from Will Barrett, the Clean Air Advocacy Director with the American Lung Association in California, and Jamie Holt, the Communications Chief at the San Joaquin Valley Air Pollution Control District. Additional funding for the Matty Report made possible by a grant from The Wonderful Company, harvesting health and happiness around the world. BNSF Railway, moving our economy for 160 years. BNSF, the engine that connects us. From the California Channel at the State Capitol and the Matty Institute, it's the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. Each year, the nonpartisan Legislative Analyst Office is required to report on the economic impacts and benefits of California's greenhouse gas emission goals. Our guest is Ross Brown. He's the LEO's expert on climate change and works on that report every year. Welcome to the Maddie Report. Thanks for having me. So, what are the general sources of greenhouse gas emissions? What are the major sources? I mean, there's a wide variety. Some of the biggest ones are transportation fuels like gasoline and diesel fuel, electricity and power plants that generate that electricity, natural gas that heats homes. Uh, there's some industrial emissions like oil refineries. Uh, and then there's other categories like agriculture, like emissions from uh, dairy farms and those types of things. Uh, the so. cow issue. <laughs> so yeah, we exactly. can talk about that. Yeah. But um, what does state law require when it comes to greenhouse gas emission limits? So there's two main limits that the state has put in place. One is a 2020 limit, so it's to reach 1990 levels by the year 2020, and that was established uh, about 10 years ago, or yeah. about 13 years ago. Then there's a second target out to 2030, so they extended the target out to 2030, and it's 40% below 1990 levels okay, by 2030. Okay, so a big reduction, but there's lots of policies that they have to do this, right? So there's things like, what, cap and trade? Um, uh, uh, climate, uh, reducing climate pollutants, uh, renewable portfolio. What's, what are some of those things that the policies that they have here to kind of do that to reach those goals? Yeah, so you mentioned the cap and trade program, which is kind of a market-based mechanism where it kind of sends a price signal to the private sector to mm -hmm. reduce emissions. Uh, on the electricity side, there's targets. There's a 2030 target to... So they want you to get like, what, like wind, wind and solar as opposed to coal-fired plants or something. Exactly. So there's a, a what's called a renewable portfolio standard where there's a certain percentage of electricity needs to be generated from renewable sources, like you said, like wind or solar, by 2030, 60% of that. They've also something called, the people in the, in, the, in the area call it VMT, right? Vehicle miles traveled. I mean, what's that about? Yeah, so that's... get people out of their cars. Exactly. So that's trying to get people to use alternative forms of transportation, like buses, or maybe walking or biking, or just driving a little bit less, get them out of the car. Okay, so my understanding is that the 2020 targets, uh, that you're supposed to hit 1990 levels by 2020, we're good uh, there, right? We're pretty in good shape there, yeah. if we already hit those targets. Yeah, in 2016, emissions actually were, were below that, okay, that so we, target. Okay, so it must have been a low target, but yeah, we hit it. But now we're talking about getting it down to, f by 2030, to 40% below 1990 levels. 
Uh, that's going to be a lot more difficult, isn't it? Yeah, and just to give you a little bit of context, a couple of numbers here. So to hit that 2020 target, it was about a 1% per year reduction needed to okay. kind of hit that 2020 target. To meet that more aggressive 2030 target, it's closer to 4% per year. So it's a, it's a big difference and much wow. more uh, ambitious. Wow, four times as much. Um, so you reported that the greenhouse gas reductions have been really been focusing on electrical generation. Um, that's the biggest driver of reduction so far. But what about sources we talked about, like transportation, industrial, ag, commercial, residential? I mean, what about those? Yeah, I mean, there, there have been some reductions in transportation since some of the main laws passed. Uh, they've been ticking up in some of the more recent years, but a lot of those other categories have remained relatively flat. And so I think there's then, you know, an interest in looking at that as well. Can we move those areas? Can we move the needle on those? Exactly. You know, CARB, uh, the California Air Resources Board, has something called a scoping plan. Uh, for emission reductions. What are they looking at in terms of hitting that 2030 target? Where are they looking for redu reductions? Yeah, I think the biggest portion of that is the cap-and-trade program, which we touched on briefly. Uh, there's also quite a bit uh, that they're expecting on uh, reducing emissions from what are called short-lived climate pollutants. The sort of dairy emissions are one of the big sources of that, refrigerants. Then there's a variety of these other policies, uh, like you know, cleaning up the electricity grid, energy efficiency regulations and incentives. And I was looking at some of your reports are very detailed, but talking about cap and trade, they're looking at 38% coming from cap and trade. That's yep. a big one. And the other 35% from coming from climate pollutant policies. Uh, so those are the big categories. Um, but all, these other, all the categories count, but those are the really big ones. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so uh, we're talking about the policies. So there's cap and trade. There's the short-lived climate pollutants. Uh, we talked about renewable portfolio. Energy efficiency, uh, that's what's making buildings more efficient? Yeah, yeah, and there's kind of a couple different categories of programs that we have there. One are just on the regulatory side. So if you're building a new home, then it has to have a certain amount of energy efficiency you know, appliances or um, insulation. Then there's also incentive programs to get people to kind of switch and upgrade to kind of new or more efficient equipment. So what is your overall assessment of, this, of the state's uh, climate policies? Um, I mean, I think... The bottom line is there, there's a lot of them out there, and the um, so you know, the benefits versus let's say the benefits versus the cost. So you, sure. Obviously, some benefits. And some, one thing you talk about is co-benefits. Right. What are, are co-benefits? So co-benefits are we're talking about greenhouse gas policies trying to address climate change. Mm -hmm. People refer to co-benefits as the other types of benefits that might uh, come with some of these other policies. So, for example, reductions in other types of pollutants, so local air pollutants, air you know, reducing issues. smog, air air quality issues, okay. exactly. And then we got the costs. There are costs that are both direct and indirect. So direct costs are easy. That's, a, I guess, the price of, of, of energy, um, I suppose, right? What are the, in, the implicit or indirect costs? Yeah, it's just uh, one example is maybe some behavioral change. Maybe there is an increase in, in electricity price, for example. And so that might f uh, encourage somebody to maybe uh, adjust their thermostat on their house. Right, so a maybe the house in the is summer. A, maybe the house is a little bit less comfortable than it otherwise would be. And so those are, those are real costs. They, they have an effect on people. They're just a little bit more difficult to quantify. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Ross Brown, an expert in environmental policy with the Nonpartisan Legislative Analyst Office about the economic effects associated with the state's climate change policies. Uh, your report seems to indicate that it's very difficult to assess uh, the economic impact of the state's climate change policies, things like impact on energy prices, on jobs, and on GDP. Why? It would seem like it would be easy to do that. Yeah, I mean, these are these are big, large-scale policies. Uh, we have a very complicated economy, and so trying to uh, identify all of the net effects of these different policies can be quite difficult. So, for example, jobs. I know that's one thing that a lot of people tend to look at. 
These policies tend to the effect of you know, having an adverse effect on some types of jobs. Maybe if you work in an industry that's dependent on greenhouse or uh, emits greenhouse gases. On the other side, there are other industries that might grow as a result of it's having some of these policies. It's how you define so. you know, green jobs, for example. That, that right. definition can be variable. And it sounds like when I was reading your report, it's really disentangling all these different impacts on, on greenhouse gas emissions. It's not a linear, clear in a connection necessarily. Exactly, exactly. And some of the policies have an effect kind of in one area and then maybe the government, you know, uh, pushes in a, in a different area and that, that how those things different balance out is, is can be very, very difficult to tease out. So. Well, let's talk about cap and trade. That's a big one. We talked but that's probably the biggest one. Uh, attempt to capture kind of the economic cost by using that program. Can you briefly describe what cap and trade is? Yeah, essentially the idea is to put just an overall cap on emissions from large sources of, of greenhouse gases in the economy. And the way that the state does that is they issue just a limited number of permits. And so each permit is basically a permit to emit one ton of carbon into the air. And so that's the way that they kind of limit, and uh, over time that cap reduces. And so the idea is to kind of limit. So they're lowering that the way. cap, they're lowering the emissions, and so the the, the caps become more valuable, I suppose. They're, and so they're gonna they're gonna charge employers. If they go over the the cap, they got to pay pay for that, right? Yeah. So in order, so the the permits can be traded, they can be bought and sold, okay. and so through that mechanism, there's a price on each one of them. And so if you're a business, you're deciding, well, should I reduce my emissions or should I go out and purchase one of these permits to cover my ongoing emissions? And so it, it gives them this price signal. Basically, they have that decision: should I can it, should I reduce emissions or pay for the permit? And so anything that's right. cheaper than p purchasing the permit. They, go, they might go and ahead and You seem to think with. that's the most cost-effective way to reduce emissions. Yeah, I mean, as we've been talking about, these are, uh, there are a lot of very different types of costs associated with these policies, and trying to estimate what those costs are for the government, from the government's perspective, can be quite difficult. And so one of the benefits of relying on a cap-and-trade program or some sort of pricing mechanism is to send that signal to businesses, hey, anything that you can do that's cheaper than this particular price you know, undertake that that cheaper action. Anything that's more expensive, yeah, uh, maybe it's less worthwhile. Yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's kind of a different way to regulate, right? The, the, kind of the old way is kind of this kind of command and control. Here's a target. You must hit it. This is an incentive-based system saying, we don't care how you hit the target. Um, you can do anything you want, but here's the max you can do. But use your own ingenuity to figure out how to get to point B. Exactly, and it could be a variety of different ways. It could be developing new technologies, implementing uh, you know, new technologies. It could be changing behavior. There are a wide variety of actions that people could take, and so it's just sending that signal to Create an incentive, and you figure it out, basically. Exactly. Okay, so despite what you think about cap and trade, you seem to like it, uh, most cost-effective way to reduce emissions, you don't think it's played a primary role in re reducing emission reductions. I mean, why? I mean, could it? at some point or? Um, possibly, I mean, I think um, mainly so far it just hasn't really been put in a position where it's had to do a whole lot of, a whole lot of re uh, reducing emissions. Um, part of that, it's hard to explain exactly why that's the reason, but we part of it is we have these other policies that are in place that we talked about a little bit earlier, and so that's having the effect of reducing emissions, and so, so emissions have actually been below where the caps have been you set also got, so You also got a pretty low allowance price, right? So the price is low, so you're not sure at this point what impact it's really having. Once that price starts to go up, then you're going to start to see, I guess, more action, I suppose. Exactly. I mean, with the price, there is an incentive to reduce, but it's been relatively low so yeah. far. Um, you stated that the details of the post-2020 cap-and-trade implementation will determine its overall effects. Can you elaborate? 
Uh, just there's a lot of important implementation decisions, but one of them, just on the issue we've been talking about, is setting the level of those caps. Okay. For example, so how how steep do you want that decline to be? Is it consistent with the way the goals that have been set out by the state so far? So uh, you know the details of, of kind of setting that up correctly can play play an extremely important role in ensuring that the program actually. I'm achieves guessing the reduction. there's a lot of lobbying on that number. I mean, there's a lot of. I mean, you think it's objective because it's a number, but it's kind of subjective, right? I mean, what do you need from a policy standpoint to get us to the 2030 target? Yeah. Um, so going forward, uh, what are some of the issues you think we should be considering when it comes to cap and trade? Uh, well, I mentioned the cap setting was okay. one issue. Um, one other thing is just this issue of trying to balance the cost of the program and, and the certainty around meeting whatever emission goals at the state. You know, has you set were also up. talking about the, there's a large number of banked allowances. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So the way the program is set up is these allowances or these permits that. Uh, so we give you these allowances. Need. And you don't use all of them. You can bank them. You can use them if you don't use it in a particular year. You can use it in a future year. So you can you can purchase or obtain some allowances now and use them several years from now. Or you so, can sell them on the market. Exactly. Uh, to yep. somebody who was saying, I'm, I'm polluting. I can't get. It's cheaper for me to buy an allowance and to put all this equipment to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So I'm going to buy it on the market. You just sell it if you're if you've been saving them. Yeah. Banking them. Yeah. Um, you also talk about um, how you allocate the revenues. From cap and trade, and some some thought has to go in that. And I'll tell you, the first thing that I thought of was high-speed rail. They, they get 25% of cap and trade. I think one of your questions is is I, I assume is the legislature should be looking at is this the most appropriate use of these these, these funds? Yeah, and there's a lot of big questions there. I think there's a lot of different ideas on kind of what the different priorities are for how to use those funds. I mean, we've suggested one important uh, place to look is using the money to, you know, for example, maybe provide a rebate or some other types of tax reductions to kind of offset some of the costs that might come along with some of the higher energy prices uh, yeah. that come from cap and trade. We're talking with Ross Brown, an expert in evaluating the state's uh, climate change policies with the nonpartisan legislative analyst office. Uh, transportation, major source of greenhouse gas emissions. What are some of the state programs uh, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in transportation? Let's say specifically with light, uh, light vehicles. Yeah, so there's rebates for things like electric vehicles for a new purchase of electric vehicle, a couple thousand dollar rebate. Uh, there's programs that require manufacturers to sell a certain number of electric vehicles, for example. Um, there's also, also got the infrastructure that goes with the the, uh, the electric vehicles, right? Because that people want. It was a thing called range anxiety, right? They want to make sure they can plug their car in and not just run out of gas. So they're building a system. Exactly. Yep. Right. And there's some state funding that goes to, to uh, increasing that network of chargers. Um, there's also s these decals that you can go in the HOV lane, I guess, if you have uh, these uh, electric vehicles? Yep, yeah, exactly. Depending on if you have kind of a, a clean car or an electric vehicle, you can get that decal and you can go into that HOV lane. Apparently so very that. popular. And I think it's, <laughs> if we were talking off camera, it yeah. depends where you are, right? If you're in a major urban area, I'm assuming the HOV lane is what you really want. Um, get through all that traffic because they're sitting there. Exactly. Um, so what about heavy-duty trucks? There's programs for heavy-duty trucks as well. Yeah, and there's a couple different types of categories. Some of the programs are like pilots and demonstrations where they're trying to push some sort of new technology like, for example, electric uh, trucks or something mm -hmm. like that. There's other programs that tend to focus on reducing local air pollutants a little bit more than mm -hmm. maybe just greenhouse gases. So, you know, trucks and other other types of kind of heavy equipment. You see this a lot with, with, with school buses, for example. Mm -hmm. There's there's programs out there to get school districts to convert to cleaner. Some of these school buses are running for you know 20, 30 years. Change them into newer technology that are less polluting. Exactly. So that's another example of that, right? With with heavy duty vehicles. Yep. Um, what about carbon fuels? And we talked about the VMT before, the vehicle miles traveled. Are there programs? I assume as well 
there. There are programs there. I mean, on, on the fuels, like for example, ethanol or other types of biofuels, there's a program that uh, provides, there's a regulation, it's very complicated, but provides some incentives to kind of increase the proportion of fuels that come from those types of sources and reduce the carbon in those sources. And then some programs related to, like we were talking about earlier, uh, reducing driving and transit. Yeah, and, and so for example, you want to have, uh, you know, transit, transit, what's it called? To transit-oriented development, mm -hmm. where you have housing near transit hubs so we can get on a bus and, and go somewhere it makes it more convenient. Yep. Um, so that's dealing with vehicle miles traveled. Really giving people options, right? So you don't have to just drive. You can either drive or you could walk or you could take a bus. Um, I would argue that's independence, right, as opposed to dependence. <laughs> um, okay, so what has been the impact of all these transportation policies uh, on reducing greenhouse gas emissions? Has it, you know, is it a clear straight line? Yes, it has reduced. We don't know. I mean, where are we on that? I, I mean, I, I think we could be pretty confident that it's it's had an effect of reducing emissions. It's just a matter of trying to tease out what's the magnitude of that effect. How big of an effect has it has it been? And that's where it becomes really difficult because there, there are all these different types of policies and trying to isolate what the effect of each one is can be, can be very, Disentangling very difficult. Disentangling the Christmas tree lights and figuring out exactly how it's going. You know, one thing you mentioned here was something about prospective analyses versus retrospective analysis. So that you were saying, I think, in your report that prospective analysis, I mean, how much we think it's going to affect, is they, they do that, but not a lot of retrospective analysis. Yeah, exactly. There's, you know, before something gets implemented, there's a lot of projections on, on what the costs or benefits are going to be. There's, uh, in, our, in our review, there's a lot less information on looking back, what have the effects been? And to be fair, that's very, very difficult to do. There's right. a lot of different things that need to be accounted for, and it can get really into the weeds, but in our view, that's, that's an important step to yeah, take. That kind of goes to my next question, actually, yeah. kind of led up to that, and that is, you know, there's so many policies that, that deal with targeting transportation emissions it seems like it really creates a lot of challenges to figure out which policy is having what effect on emissions, right? And so, so the interactions, I mean, that, that's a big deal, right, between like federal and state policies and Explain that for a second. Why it's so difficult to figure this out? Yeah, I mean, I think one good example is on uh, electric vehicles. Uh, we talked a little bit about the different programs that are, that are out there to kind of promote electric vehicles through either charging infrastructure, mandates on vehicle manufacturers, rebates to consumers. So you can kind of look at the increase in electric vehicles over time, but trying to figure out which one of those programs is doing the most and which one is most kind of cost effective in achieving that goal can be very and difficult. And you're say, well, technology has, has a role to play. Yeah. They've improved technology, so now that you can drive farther, for example, on a charge, or, or gas prices have gone up. What happens to the economy? Is there unemployment? All these other factors, you're trying to, oh, we're just looking at the policy, and it's very hard to just say, this is what the policy is doing, right? The connection's that, not all easy. That's exactly right, yeah. Yeah, um, so, uh, so anyway, so determining transportation-specific policies that are, that are more costly or less costly, when you look at transportation policies and you compare that to cap and trade, for example, in terms of reducing emissions from you know, cost-benefit analysis, it seems like the cap and trade stuff is a little bit more efficient and effective in doing that. But with transportation policies, there's some other benefits that you get from transportation policy. So can you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, absolutely. And we talked a little bit about just air quality issues and, you know, some of these programs in particular, the heavy duty vehicle programs, I think, you know, one of the main rationales for some of those programs is to improve local or regional air quality and, and kind of targeting programs to do that uh, can have this additional kind of co-benefit like, like we talked about before. One other uh, uh, sort of rationale for some of these other policies could be promoting some new technology. There could be a, a real appropriate role for government to kind of push some research and development or some new technology. Right, and sometimes that, that needs, the, frankly, the, the help of, of the government to kind of get these, these new embryonic kind of technologies moving. Um, and that's kind of a role possibly to play. They don't necessarily 
see the, the payoff right away. Exactly. And it's really sort of trying to balance some of these other goals with what appears to be a, a much more sort of cost-effective approach in just a cap-and-trade. Okay. Now, you've made some recommendations uh, to the legislature, some things they ought to consider when, when they're looking at the climate change policies. Your first recommendation is to use uh, economy-wide pricing to achieve low-cost uh, reductions. Sounds like you're advocating cap-and-trade. Yeah, cap and trade uh, is one good, a good example and the one that the state has about using economy-wide pricing. And this goes back to, to uh, an issue that we talked about where just in our view, providing that uh, incentive and price signal to businesses, households to invest in new technologies and kind of to undertake the actions that they feel are most cost-effective to reducing emissions, develop new technologies, change their behavior, is a much more effective way than, for example, government coming down and saying, we, we need to reduce emissions in this particular way from this particular source. Right, you source. have a smokestack and we're going to say exactly how much to reduce it. That's kind of a command and control as exactly. opposed to, hey, this is how much, how much credit, how much you can pollute. Um, if you want to pollute out of that smokestack, fine, but then you're going to have to find someplace else, if it's more cost-effective, get it someplace else. And so it allows them kind of the flexibility and ingenuity, what's the most cost-effective way to get to point B? Exactly. Right? And yeah. so that's, I can understand why you'd like that. So the complementary policies, um, like those the state has for, for transportation, what about those? I mean, how would you, what would you tell the legislature to think about when they, when they look at that and they look at uh, greenhouse gas emission reductions? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, it, 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 our recommendation is to look really hard at what some of these other benefits might be when thinking about whether or not there's a strong rationale for something, having so some think of these other co-benefits in place. You know, not just kind of the straightforward cost-benefit analysis on greenhouse gas emissions, there's these other things you need to consider as well. Exactly, and those are yeah. important, and there could be a very important role for government in, uh, in addressing those issues. And, but it's just, trying again, trying to sort of balance what might be uh, higher greenhouse gas costs against those other additional benefits. You know, one thing I found really interesting in your recommendations, and it's almost counterintuitive, um, so I want you to kind of talk about this for a minute, and that is you, you say that you should, the state might want to consider focusing on policies most likely to encourage greenhouse gas uh, reductions in other jurisdictions as a way to maximize overall greenhouse gas reduction benefits. It sounds like, wait a second, you're asking Californians to pay for greenhouse gas reductions that other jurisdictions are going to do? I, yeah, so the, the context here is, you know, climate change is a global issue and emissions, regardless of where they are, have an effect on climate change. And California represents about 1% of global greenhouse and gas emissions. And that's usually the argument is, why should we, kind of throw up your hands, why should we do anything It's only 1%? Yeah, but there, there's still important things that the state could do to uh, to help move things forward, and uh, and a lot, but a lot of it depends on what we're doing here, how it influences actions in other jurisdictions. So they're watching so. other jurisdictions, saying, "Is it California's trying this? Is it working? And if it is, then they adopt it. So you get this multiplier effect. It sounds like exactly. I, there's there's a couple of different avenues through which California policies might might have an impact, and we think these are important things to look at when evaluating the policies. One is that demonstrate the policy demonstration. So, for example, if cap and trade is working very well, maybe another jurisdiction might adopt it and reduce their, reduce more of their emissions. The other avenue is uh, promoting some new technologies and trying to kind of uh, drive the development of new technologies, with, which can then be adopted in other jurisdictions you know, as it's well. Interesting. If, uh, I remember uh, Governor Brown went to China, and you know, of course, they have pollution issues, and they were looking to California for guidance as to you know how do they reduce pollution in China based on the policies that we have. And since greenhouse gas emissions are a global phenomenon, and China is producing a lot of them. I mean, it does have, that's the spillover effect or the multiplier effect of policies here affecting 
worldwide uh, greenhouse gas uh, emission reductions. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people, I think, that look to California and the policies that we're implementing and looking at what works and, and what doesn't work. And so there, that's an important lens through which to view, uh, in our view, the California's climate policy. Now, the last thing in your recommendations, we've only got about a minute left, and I want to ask you this. Your final recommendation says, you seem to want to address the core issue that we've been talking about, and that is establishing a robust system to evaluate the effects of these policies. What actions specifically are you recommending in that regard? Yeah, I mean, it's not always easy, but in our view, one example of, of the way the state might be able to do a little better job is thinking about beforehand, before a policy is implemented or is, or is expanded, thinking about how might you evaluate that policy after it's been implemented, let's say a few years down the road. And so thinking about that upfront, trying to think about what data might need to be collected, trying to think about what type of evaluation we might do, maybe even consult with researchers that, at that point before the policy is implemented so we don't get in a position where down the road we, we still don't really know exactly how effective the policies right. have been. Be, so. be proactive in your evaluation. I want to thank uh, Ross Brown very much uh, for joining us from the Nonpartisan Legislative Analyst Office. You're listening to the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition on KMJ. Welcome back. So what about a major cause of climate change and a relentless challenge for the San Joaquin Valley? Air pollution. Is our air getting any cleaner? Recently, the American Lung Association issued its State of the Air report. We're fortunate to have Will Barrett, who is the Clean Air Advocacy Director with the American Lung Association in California, as our guest. Welcome, Will. Hi, thank you for having me. So so what did the Hunt Valley uh, fare in uh, this year's report? Well, this is our 20th annual State of the Air report by the American Lung Association, and, and the report does continue to show that the San Joaquin Valley is home to some of the most difficult air pollution challenges in the United States, both in terms of ozone or summertime smog or particle pollution. Um, we show significant progress over the 20 years of the report uh, in the San Joaquin Valley, but we also know that there's still a long way to go. And unfortunately, um, the cities in the San Joaquin Valley, Fresno, Bakersfield, Visalia, all show up in our list of the most polluted in the United States by either ozone or particle pollution. So we, when we compare Valley cities then to the U.S., uh, we're at the bottom, or I guess we'd say the top in terms of air pollution, bottom in terms of air quality. Um, and even compared to other cities in California, like Los Angeles and, and you know, in the South Basin, South, uh, South, Southern California? Right. Well, Fresno and Bakersfield each rank number one. Our report looks at um, short-term particle pollution, so the number of unhealthy particle pollution days, as well as year-round particle pollution. And Bakersfield winds up being number one most polluted by that short-term or number of days of particle pollution in the United States, while Fresno metropolitan area ranks number one for annual levels of particles. Visalia ranks second for ozone pollution. You think about ozone as our summertime smog issues, mm -hmm. and they're right behind Los Angeles at number one on the list. Okay, so what's the, what's the reason why the Valley does so poorly in these air quality ratings, I mean, year after year? Well, there are a lot of things um, at play here. There's local pollution sources, uh, especially in the transportation sector, is the leading source of pollution in California and the San Joaquin Valley that, that drives unhealthy levels of ozone and particle pollution, as well as they're the leading contributor to climate change. Um, we also have to deal with the fact that the Valley is essentially a bowl that can capture pollution and, and it can sit for days at a time or weeks at a time, depending on weather, rain patterns, and that kind of thing. So there are, there are local sources of pollution, there are transportation sources of pollution, and there are those uh, overlay of climate and geography that, that we're dealing with. The key findings in this year's report is that while we are showing uh, over the 20-year history of the report progress being made in cleaning up ozone, cleaning up particle pollution, we're now also seeing the impacts of climate change really show up in the data. 
So this, this year's report covers air quality data gathered in 2015, 2016, and 2017, which were the three hottest years on record, and also three years where we saw seven of the 20 most destructive wildfires in California history. That, that's the connection between climate change and pollution. It's the now that we're having, we're seeing bigger forest fires. Well, we're seeing um, hotter, drier conditions, and that drives ozone pollution. Um, ozone pollution forms when um, emissions from tailpipes, for example, mix on in the atmosphere on hot, sunny days. And then also, yeah, we're, we're seeing the landscape completely dried out and becoming more susceptible to these more catastrophic, more frequent, more intense wildfires that, that blanket wide swaths of California and beyond in, in harmful particle pollution. Let me ask you this, though. You know, isn't a lot of this problem in the valley driven by economics? I mean, the valley is among the poorest regions in the country, and that means uh, that people are driving older vehicles. You've also got local governments that are probably reluctant to make any demands on business for fear that they're going to scare away business. Isn't this driven by economics to a large extent? Well, I think there are a lot of factors at play. Uh, there's the geographic issues, the climate issues, playing, playing with the air quality in the valley. There's also this issue of these local pollution sources that need to be cleaned up. And there are other issues. There are other locations around the country that have uh, similar um, challenges. But it doesn't mean we can't or we can discount the fact that there are these local sources to clean up. If we don't deal with the pollution impacts that the public is dealing with, especially um, lower-income communities, we, in the report, we note there are approximately 800,000 lower-income individuals in the San Joaquin Valley, and they all deserve to breathe clean, healthy air. So we can't really let up. We have to keep going. We have to really make sure that every community is afforded clean, healthy air. So I think it's a false choice to say that we have to pick between the economy or public health. We really need to double down on um, the solutions to clean up our air. Yeah, so you're saying as, as much as 20% of the of the population in the San Joaquin Valley, because we've got about 4.3 million in the valley, um, are these people that uh, are have economic challenges, economically disadvantaged. And that's impacting, you know, how we deal with this. So are you seeing as – what are some of the solutions that the, the uh, American Lung Association is, is, is talking about in terms of solving this problem, improving air quality in the valley? Sure. I think one of the main things that, that we highlight in the report is really making sure that the, the Federal Clean Air Act and our California Clean Air Pro- programs really are continuing to produce clean air benefits that we need to see. Um, there are efforts at the, at the federal level right now to roll back life-saving pollution reduction programs, that would have significant impacts on California uh, and the San Joaquin Valley. Specifically, um, there are nearly 100 health organizations who are opposed to the uh, federal efforts to repeal California's Clean Air Act authority to protect our citizens through stronger control programs. Uh, There's efforts to roll back our clean car standards, oil and gas regulations, and other health protective measures that are afforded to us under the Clean Air Act. So, on a broad stroke, we really need to be sticking to the, um, the the benefits of the Clean Air Act, making sure California's authority stays intact, and that we can continue to protect our citizens. On a more local level, we need to ensure that um, the good plans that are being put in place to clean up the air have the political and the financial support needed to, to achieve the benefits envisioned in those programs. Um, ultimately, having a plan on the shelf that isn't funded isn't going to do us much good. So we are encouraging um, everyone to push for the funding needed to achieve the goals in the Air District's um, pollution control plans. Um, and then, you know, really monitoring to make sure that 
those benefits that the Air District has approved or uh, set in motion are really, you know, that we're tracking with those benefits and making sure that as um, those plans are implemented that we're not falling short if we need, uh, if the financing, financing doesn't come through. So then we would need to really look, take a harder look at some of those, those larger leading sources of pollution. Um, the other thing I would note is that the, there's a real need to grow our communities in a healthier way, really focusing on healthy community development. Um, so that means transitioning towards um, cleaner transportation options, really supporting more electric vehicle deployment, transit options, walking and bikeable, walkable and bikeable communities. And really this takes local, uh, local leadership, it takes regional leadership to really put health at the focus of uh, as our communities grow and evolve and really making sure that um, we're investing in existing neighborhoods, making sure that they grow healthier over time and not setting up uh, conditions where we're just ever, you know, ever increasing sprawl, uh, driving and, and associated harmful pollution. So up next, we're going to talk with Jamie Holt, the Chief Communications Officer with the San Joaquin Valley Air Pollution Control District, the lead agency in the fight for clean air in the valley. Welcome to the Matty Report. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Okay, well, let me ask you first. Uh, I want to get your take on um, the American Lung Association's most recent uh, report. Well, we appreciate the report in that it gets folks talking about air quality, which is always a positive here in the Valley. I think everyone has an opinion about it, thoughts about it. Uh, most folks are aware that we do have some of the most significant challenges of any place in the United States. So the fact that this report comes out and it kind of puts it front and center is a great opportunity for us to talk about one, how air quality is improving and has improved over the last 20 years. Uh, two, that we have a long way to go, as the report noted, in meeting the federal goals that are in front of us. And three, that everyone can play a role in helping us reach those goals that we have for clean air year-round in the San Joaquin Valley. So let me ask you this. Um, what are the biggest sources of uh, pollution that we can't control? And what are the biggest sources of pollution that we can control? Well, um, now, you know, the collective, the great collective, I like to think that, that we can uh, work on all of the sources of pollution. Um, the biggest source that we have in the Valley is heavy-duty diesel trucks, and we are working very hard uh, in partnership with the California Air Resources Board to get those cleaned up as quickly as possible, both through regulation and incentives. What we can't control is that the San Joaquin Valley is really a perfect environment for pollution. You know, the analogy that so many people make is that we're a bowl and when we get our inversion layers or we get our climate that comes in, our meteorology that comes in, the, the stagnant conditions in the winter and the hot, dry summers, we really are a perfect environment for creating and trapping pollution. Um, there's no place quite as, uh, quite as beautiful as the valley, in my opinion, and no place that is quite as susceptible to pollution. You know, I tell folks on a regular basis, it's not that we pollute more than the Bay Area. We actually pollute significantly less than the Bay Area, but we don't have the, the meteorology or the topography that can disperse that pollution. So what happens on our poor air quality days is that Pollution comes into the valley, and it really has no place to go. So it, it well, builds well, up, and it well, builds Jamie, up, though, and eventually you well, see more air quality. Wait, I mean, you, the, the, there is some pollution that comes in from the, from the valley from, from, you know, the Bay Area, but that becomes less of an issue as you move further south in the valley, right? Um, and number two, I mean, a lot right, of it right, is, is right. homegrown, right? I mean, a lot of the pollution is occurring right. 
right here. Right. Now, I, and I wasn't saying that pollution is coming in from the Bay Area. I was just okay. saying that the Bay Area has a much better air quality environment, mm -hmm. but they actually pollute more than we do. It's yeah. just that we have this natural challenge of our mountains and our weather that means that the amount of pollution that we put into our environment, it has nowhere to go. So a right. lot less pollution makes a much bigger difference. Here you know, it's that. interesting. What I find really interesting, I, and I, you're going to correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure, but I think I read somewhere that Salinas is one of the cleanest cities uh, in, in terms of air quality in the country. And you wouldn't expect that. It's right next to the valley. It's because of geography. It's a big part of it. Uh, I don't know uh, exactly. I know there are some parts of um, western San Luis Obispo County and Santa Barbara County, excuse me, eastern parts of those counties that actually uh, do do poorly when it comes to air quality measurements. It's actually the reason why when the American Lung Association report is looking at something like a Santa Barbara County or a San Luis Obispo County, they often will sometimes receive a, an F grade just like us, but it's because of those those cities, those monitoring sites that are on the eastern part of the county. For right. Salinas, I'm not well, I, I can tell really? you, I, I have looked it up, and I was very surprised. And so I, I wouldn't say it if I wasn't pretty sure, and I'm pretty sure that that is accurate, that they actually have very clean air, which is kind of amazing because it sits right next to the valley. I think geography, I think, I think, has a lot to do with that. Let me ask you this. What are the Air District's plans to address those sources that we can control? Well, the, the biggest thing that we are working on right now, we had a plan that um, was approved last year. The California Air Resources Board approved it, and it it goes after our, our biggest culprit, which is particulate matter. Particulate matter is what we see in the winter. It's going to be uh, the more difficult of the two pollutants we battle. We see ozone in the summer and particulate matter in the winter. We are seeing ozone get better faster than we are seeing particulate matter get better. They are both getting better. They, they, we both have better winters and better summers. As a matter of fact, last summer was the cleanest summer on record. This past winter was the second cleanest winter on record. So we definitely see this trend of improving air quality. But the big plan that we just passed, our particulate matter plan, has a variety of different elements. One is new regulations. We're open in our books. We're looking at all the regulations that we've passed in the last 25 years plus, and we're seeing if we can make them tighter. Is there technology out there that will make our regulations tighter? And we regulate stationary sources. So things that might be, it might be a boiler. It might be a backup generator. There's a variety of things that we regulate, and we're going to look at those, reopen them, and see if there's ways to make them tighter. The other thing we're doing, probably the two biggest things, is that we're looking at our wintertime residential wood burning rule. So this is that rule that tells right. people that they're not allowed to use their fireplace or their wood burning device on days when air quality is poor during the winter months, November through so February. So what, what are you thinking about in terms of, what you, when you say tighter, what do you mean by that? Less days when you can use those devices. Should so they, you know, one of the whereas, questions. Whereas right now. One of the questions is, should they be banned? Is, is, is that something that really, you know, maybe we should consider banning them because they, the Valley just can't simply absorb with the number of people that live here, and, you know, fireplaces. They're, they're getting tighter and tighter. There are lots of people who think they should be banned, and there are lots of people who think absolutely not, they shouldn't be banned. So in addition to making it more difficult to burn or allowing less days on which you can burn, we also have an incentive program that's basically going to, pay most of the cost to replace that old wood burning device. So if you have an open hearth fireplace, we'll give you money up to $3,000 to go in and put a gas device. And so we want, we're 
doing both the carrot and the stick approach. Right. You know, you mentioned earlier about folks in disadvantaged communities. We know there are a lot of folks that live in disadvantaged communities that maybe can't afford to go and spend money to replace their old wood-burning you know, device, their insert, their fireplace. So we want to make sure that there's money available for those folks to upgrade to a gas device. It's more efficient heating for their home. Their electric bill will go down. Let me ask you, let me ask you this, Jamie. How, let me ask you this. How, how much of that $3,000, does it cover the full cost of replacement, a, a portion, if a portion how much? It gets pretty close. It gets pretty close, and as we go through the new rulemaking process, which um, will be going before our board in June, and the new grant with the new dollar amounts will be coming in in July, August. Um, I actually did this in my own home about goodness, five years ago, and it was just under $3,000. So when we, when we go and we put the new rule in place, less days you can burn, more money in the incentive program, we're going to be working to make sure that that money for low-income folks pays for the entire cost. Right now it pays pretty close. Um, we have heard stories about folks who haven't had a single out-of-pocket cost on that, but it really de depends on what you select, what your existing infrastructure is, those types of things. But our goal is to make it pretty much, especially for low-income folks, free for them to upgrade their device. You know, it might be because of, of your uh purchasing power. I mean, you possibly maybe work with some of these manufacturers and dealers to get a, a cut rate deal. If, if people buy, you know, their inserts from certain companies, perhaps that's a way to kind of drive down the cost. Um, it does seem though that... And we have had a great relationship with our retailer partners over the past going on about 10 years, and they've been at the table. You can imagine us uh, saying they're, you know, in some counties, there may only be maybe a dozen days, if that, will you be able to use your open hearth fireplace. Mm -hmm. So if there's only a dozen days where you can use your open hearth fireplace, we have to work with our retailers to make sure they're ready so that folks can switch out that device to gas. And but, we've had a great relationship By the with way, them. if someone is just just saying, you know, I'm just going to ignore the law, I'm going to do whatever I want to do, um, what are the penalties? If someone's you know notified and they just... First-time violators get a... First-time violators, we give out about 600 tickets a year. Uh, First-time violators, uh, they get a $100 fine. They can drop that fine down to $50. If they go to our wood-burning class, it's a two-hour class that's in all of our three regional offices. And I will tell you, most of our violators are first-time offenders, and they don't re-violate. If we do have repeat offenders, we do have uh, instances where, you know, we'll take you to small claims court, then the fines get bigger. It'll jump from 100 to 300 to much more than that. So okay. we're serious about this. Okay. Um, let me ask you this. It seems like, you know, when we talk about the Valley's air quality challenges, a lot of it has to do with, you know, kind of this unique geography and historically poor economic conditions. Are they just... Are those two factors just too great to overcome? No, I, I, I don't think so. But it does mean that we have to be one of the most innovative and creative places in the United States when it comes to air quality. And, uh, you know, we have a variety of programs that other folks have said are some of the most innovative and, you know, really the benchmark for how things are done. We have, you know, uh, phone calls from Los Angeles and Bay Area and Sacramento and then all around the United States. They want to, you know, mirror our programs. They want to see how our regulations were written. It just means that we need to be creative. And the only way to do that, quite frankly, is working with, 
with our partners, and that includes business and industry coming to the table and chatting with us a lot. That includes our environmental justice communities, those folks representing those disadvantaged communities, what's going to work for them, what kind of incentive programs or even regulations will work in those communities so that everyone can actively play a role. You know, the other big thing that's in our PM plan, the other big source of particulate matter during the winter is cooking. And folks don't really think about that. So we're now looking at an incentive program followed up by a rule that will look at charbroiling at restaurants. Mm -hmm. So if you think at the nice restaurants around town and they have this big open flame and they've got steaks or salmon or whatever that's cooking on it, if they are burning or if they are cooking enough meat over the course of time, that smoke that is coming off that meat, that burning grease that's coming off of that meat is going up through usually what is just a chimney like structure. There's no filter on it, there's no system to scrub it. And that's going into the air that we're breathing. It's similar in a lot of respects to a, a wood burning fireplace. So up next after our residential wood burning rule it's gonna come a charboiling yeah. rule. Yeah, the, the, that, that smell, that, yeah, the people drive around town, you know, they smell these places, it smells great, but it's probably not good for the air quality. Let me ask you this, though. You know, last year, I, I believe, the Air District went before Congress to ask for a reprieve uh, from some of the requirements of the Federal Clean Air Act um, because they were concerned that, that the sanctions would cost the region about $2.5 billion in federal highway funds and fines, and that new businesses could only expand uh, if they could offset their emissions. What happened with that? Uh, well, it, in the current political climate in D.C., as as with everything, it's you know it, it, there's not a lot happening in D.C. right now. But we were really asking for some just uh, cleaning up of the Clean Air Act, making it a little bit easier for folks to navigate through and to understand. Um, the best example is our PM plan that we just got passed, our particulate matter plan. It was actually for three different particulate matter standards. So it's just a very, the Clean Air Act, it, while being incredibly useful and definitely showing uh, that you can improve air quality over time through things like federal action, it, it, it is a bit cumbersome. Um, and so we, we really advocated to just clean it up and to have it, you know, be a little more streamlined. Um, but with the current climate in D.C. right now, I, I think our priorities are a little more local, a little more valley-focused. Let me let me ask you this. So, I, my understanding is you've got this new plan uh, that you uh, that's been I guess been approved, and it's it has a price tag of about five billion dollars um, because you want to replace trucks, you want to you know refurbish uh, or replace farm vehicles, lots of things um, that you're looking at. It's a lot of money, five billion dollars. How much of that do you have already kind of allocated, and and how much are you going to still need to raise, and where is that money going to come from? We think. And this is a think, but we think we probably can expect about two million of that, either um, already committed or the intent is to commit it, and that's coming from federal, state, and local sources. So it's a mix of where that money is coming from. But the other part, and exactly what um, Will said before, we all have to be, you know, pounding the drum and understand that we've got to, you know, make a lot of noise at the state and federal level and let folks understand that the problem here in the valley is such, unmatched by any other nation or any other area, that we need to make sure that, that funding is coming to support some of the tough tough hurdles that we have to cross in order to see clean air year round in the valley. You know, I was, in, I was if I got this correct, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is about $3.3 billion of that $5 billion is to replace 33,000 trucks. I mean, trucks, diesel trucks, 
particularly the older ones, because the diesel has gotten progressively better over time. Um, but old diesel trucks are, are, are a big source of pollution in the valley. Is that correct? That's correct. They're our number one pollution source. And let me tell you, diesel trucks, they are well made. They last a really <laughs> long time. We have diesel trucks on the road right. that might be 30, 40 years old. They can get refurbished, reused, um, hundreds of thousands of miles, and, uh, you know, they were built to last. So getting those swapped out in a way that uh, that that doesn't, you know, really hurt our, our little independent operators. Right, because you, 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 you talk to some of those small operators, and you say, you know, if I try to retrofit my, my truck to have it being less polluting, the, the retrofit, the cost of the retrofit is more expensive than, than the value of the entire truck. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So we want to make sure that as we see, and, and I will tell you, it's the California Resources Board that's in charge of regulating diesel trucks. But what we've done in the Valley is really advocate for funds to come to the Valley through the Carl Morial program and a variety of others so that we can defer the cost or help pay for part of the cost of these trucks that, you know, everyone's obligated to get into in the next several years. Okay. So I got one last question, about 30 seconds or so left. You know, bottom line. Will the Valley ever see clean air? And if so, when? You know what? We're seeing it today. I just checked before I got on the phone with you guys, and today's a great day for air quality in the Valley. Will we see it 365 days a year in the Valley? I sure hope so. That's our intent. Our intent is to have one of those uh, years where, you know, we don't make the American Lung Association's report (laughs) where we slowly inch our way up be an A-plus grade, but I definitely think it's possible. I think with the collaborative efforts of folks here in the Valley with, uh, you know, uh, some new technology that's on the horizon, I definitely think that we'll get there. We're going to leave it on that hopeful note. I want to thank Jamie Holt with the Air District for joining us, as well as Will Barrett with the American Lung Association. Thanks both of you for joining us. The views and opinions expressed in the Matter Report are those of the individuals participating in the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the California Channel or the Maddie Institute. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the points and opinions expressed on the Maddie Report, visit our website at maddieinstitute.org. The Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Maddie Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.